Welcome to uh, the Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. Since Brexit and the election of Trump, the world has been abuzz over populism. Today, we'll explore modern populism and its impact on global business. I have with me Professor Cox here in London at London School of Economics talking about the rise of populism and the crisis of globalization. We will be covering this important subject in two episodes. We have a lot of information to share with our listeners as a courtesy of Professor Cox. He chaired a session on this important subject at London School of Economics. And uh, we have also captured some excerpts from that section or the session to share with our listeners. The session had several experts on the subject sharing their views. So now let's look what's happening. Today there is a specter of a unique kind which is haunting Europe. It is not communism, but it's another dangerous ism. And that ism is something that has come to be known as populism. There have been varieties of populism in the past. Russia had its own uh, species of the same during the 1870s and 1880s. A similar, though politically less radical version of populism grew up in the United States during the 1890s and reappeared in different iterations several times thereafter. There were the many varieties of populism which became the main problem in Latin America during the post-war years. Peronism in Argentina was one of them. To a student of history, it might seem that the current situation is nothing new. But there is something very different happening this time. Populism has migrated towards Europe, where it did not have much foothold in the past, and it is much more widespread than the past. Populism is assuming international form. In the past, the populism was more of a national character. As per a Chatham House report, the trend of rising support for populist extremist parties has been one of the most striking developments in modern European politics. One which not only poses a challenge to Europe alone, but to democracy itself. Events like Brexit and the general rise of anti-establishment populist and extreme political parties in Western Europe is becoming cause for worry and it poses threat not only to Europe, but globalization. Across the ocean, a similar behavior became visible with the popular discontent being tapped by President Trump to win a presidential election. Trump and Bernie Sanders both got popular support for rallying against the elites and powerful. Rhetoric was aimed against globalism, press, human rights issues, EU and Brexit was labeled as a wonderful thing by no less than the President of United States during his election campaign. How would the populism impact the geopolitical equations and the global business in future is creating widespread curiosity. Can it halt or even reverse the process of globalization? We will be discussing this in detail with Professor Cox and, and listening to various excerpts on, uh, on this subject. Part of those subjects, individual pieces from various experts. Let me first introduce Professor Michael Cox. Professor Michael Cox is Director of London School of Economics, Ideas, and Emeritus Professor of International Relations at London School of Economics. Professor Cox is a well-known speaker on global affairs and has lectured in the United States, Australia, Asia, and in the EU. 
the European Union. He has spoken on a range of contemporary global issues. Now, most recently, he has focused on the role of United States in the international system, the rise of Asia, and whether or not the world is now in the midst of a major power shift. Professor Cox has more than 100 publications to his credit. Professor Cox has held several professional positions in the field of international relations at various institutes across the globe. He also serves on the editorial board of several academic journals and has been editor of several leading journals in international relations, including the Review of International Studies, International Relations, Cold War History, and International Politics. Professor Cox helped to establish the Cold War Studies Center in 2004 and expanded it into IDEAS, a foreign policy center based at the London School of Economics, which aims to bring the academic and policy worlds together, and it was established in the year 2008. Professor Cox, welcome to the Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. Very nice to be here. Well, Professor Cox, I'm in your favorite subject. So, rise of populism globally in different countries, continents, and mm. crisis of globalization. Mm. The two phenomena you have been uh, discussing a lot about. Tell us, is it, are they related phenomena or are they individual phenomena? Mm. Well, there's two, two separate issues there. One is populism and the other is about, is there a crisis of globalization? Uh, let me just start with globalization and then get to populism. Start with economics and then move to the politics. It might be a more logical way of doing that. True. I think the first thing you've got to say about globalization, it's been hugely successful in terms of wealth creation, <laughs> poverty reduction, and, and simply generating a growth in previously underdeveloped uh, countries and poor countries such as India, such as China. Uh, and large parts of Asia, of course, have benefited from it. And interestingly, within the emerging economies, certainly the big, the big economies like India and China, you don't f feel there, and people don't say there to you, oh, there's a crisis of globalization. They say globalization is good. Right. Globalization has benefited. If you remember, Chinese President Xi Jinping at Davos in January of this year, 2017, made a speech at the, at the World Economic Forum in Davos in Switzerland, you know, where the elite gather. And he said, nothing wrong with globalization. It's a, it's a good thing. Don't blame globalization for everything. In fact, globalization is basically a benefit for everybody. It's a win-win situation. And I find I was recently in India, and I find the same thing there. So there's two things you want to say about globalization. One, in general terms, it has produced a lot of wealth, a lot of trade, a lot of foreign direct investment, a new middle class right across the world. And so the benefits of it more generally for the global economy, it seems to me, and for, and for global society, I think is, is clear. And moreover, the countries that seem to have benefited most are the new emerging economies, China in particular, but also other countries like India. The other thing I'd say about globalization, finally, the third point is simply that I think globalization is irreversible. Uh, I, I simply don't believe we are moving into a deglobalized world. I don't think we're going to move back to protectionism. I don't see the world economy going back into national self-sufficiency. It's gone too far. It's too integrated, the supply chains and the, and the benefits of it uh, to countries around the world and to various corporations are, are just too big. Even Trump will not be able to, even though he was very critical of globalism, uh, I think even he will find that the American economy is far too integrated into the global economy to get out of it. Yet, having said that, having said all that about globalization, there is clearly question marks about it now being, there are question marks which are now, then questions are being asked about globalization, and we understand why. Because in all, in all walks of life and in relationship to globalization, there are always winners, and there are those who don't win. This is, this is the nature of the world, and that's the nature of the international economy today. And it's quite clear that in the West, and this is where the problem or the issue of populism has become most, most visible, it's clear that in the Western countries, or some Western countries, maybe all 
advanced Western countries. They are facing a series of challenges which have arisen because of open markets, mm-hmm. because of open borders. Right. And I think, you know, it's there that you're facing it. Uh, not so much in China and India and the other emerging economies, which have been the beneficiaries. It's in, it's in the Western economies, the advanced, the rich countries, in other words. In other words, those who everybody thought once were the beneficiaries of globalization now are becoming more critical. And the reasons that's happening, I think it's pretty obvious. And there are good material economic reasons why that's happening. Jobs have gone, mm-hmm. uh, not only because of globalization, technology, but globalization has clearly played a role. You know, if you can produce material or goods in China or Mexico cheaper than you can do in America or in the European Union, then where, where's the, where is a corporation going to invest? It's quite clear that you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of jobs have been lost. Uh, and maybe it's been exaggerated by Mr. Trump and his political rhetoric and others, but nonetheless, jobs have been lost. Um, there is also the question of open borders. And we know the question then is open borders, free movement of peoples. And that has raised questions of, of migration. Mm-hmm. And of course, immigration is good for the economy in general. But one of the reasons immigration is generally good for the economy is it pushes down the price of wa- the wages of if you like, native workers, indigenous workers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you get a lot of people coming in from one country who will sell themselves lower at a lower price than somebody else, then inevitably those who are established workers in any country think their wages are being pushed down. So there's certainly a, a real backlash against some of the long-term consequences of globalization. I'd also add two other things which have led to populism. The two other things, I think that post-2008, and even before 2008, I think a lot of, a lot of economists are now working on the, on the view, um, in, including a very f- famous Indian economist who's now the, the, major, the major advisor to Modi. I think he said that hyper-globalization, as he calls it, has produced all the benefits we know about, all, all, all the positives, but nonetheless, in its modern form, it, it has disrupted. Mm. It has also disrupted lives. It's direct, disrupted uh, the, the advanced economies. It has driven down wages in, in, in many countries. It has lost jobs. Jobs have been exported uh, overseas. But there's also another issue. The 2008 crisis has clearly delivered a shock to the Western economies. And people, and we can see looking, even, at, even before 2008, if you actually look at wages, take-home pay, general living standards mm-hmm. of ordinary working class or middle class people, they've either stagnated or gone down. And that's certainly true in Britain and certainly true in the United States. And again, that's creating a sense of uncertainty about the world. You know, people today say, under globalization, okay, I can see the general benefits for the corporations, mm-hmm. the bosses, if you like. I can see they make money out of this. They do very well, but the ordinary um, ordinary workers themselves don't make. And in fact, they may be the loser. They may be the losers because of either cheaper labor coming in or jobs being exported outside. And that has been tapped into, I think, by 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 by, by politicians. And I think that tapped into what happened here in the United Kingdom in 2016 with the Brexit vote. I think that was one part of the reason why people voted Brexit only by a small margin but they still voted in by right. 51 to 52 percent to leave and I think that was followed a few months later as we know what happened in the United States with Trump and that was even more explicitly anti-globalization and anti-globalism so there is a connection between globalization and the dynamics and the the downsides of globalization in the rich West countries and the rise of, of populism in the West, and not only in Britain and the United States, by the way, but also in, in the European Union countries. Right, you're right, because the other point, uh, Professor Cox, you, you, you mentioned was the positive of globalization, the people coming out of poverty. I think China itself, since globalizing from what they opened in the late 70s, they, as per some sources, they say 800 billion people have come out of poverty. Well, whatever the number, I mean, whether, number, we just don't know. And it also depends how you measure poverty. Exactly. As you know, in, I've just come back from India and there's a big discussion and dispute going on there. Oh, okay. so what is the real poverty line? If you earn more than $1.25, is that taking you above the poverty line? Well, you're still very poor. Right. So there's a big debate about how you measure poverty. And this is always very contentious. But the truth of the matter is, even in a country like India, which has so many poor people, really poor people, as I'm sure you well know, 
and China too, which has its fair share of very poor people. Nonetheless, there, poverty, there has been poverty reduction, isn't there? No question about that. And secondly, and as you've seen, I saw this in India and I've seen it in China because I've been going to China much more than I've been going to India, sadly. Mm. There you go. Um, you can see the creation of a new middle class. Right. And, and, and this new middle class, it has emerged for all sorts of reasons, which has to do with the entrepreneurial strengths of China, the entrepreneurial spirit in India now, mm. since the reforms of 91. But nonetheless, it's, it's the opening out to the world economy, selling into the world economy, and in a sense, trying to establish international economic standards, which are measured against the United States and the EU. These have clearly created a new, you know, very, very uh, dynamic and, and particularly, particularly uh, cash-rich middle class, and, and, the, and they're very, very important. So the upsides of globalization still need to be stressed. Right. The question, the real paradox, of course, is that it's in the poorer countries now that you find more support for globalization. Right, because they've been gaining in the rich countries. Gained, yeah, they they're the winners. Gained. In a sense, they are the winners. They are the winners. And President Xi Jinping's uh, uh, talk at Davos you know, yeah, said, we're, we're, we're the winners. Right, right, you know, right. Criticizing President Trump for saying globalization is a, is a bad thing. Yeah, and like maybe for President Trump, he's trying to protect his turf. That there is stagnation of jobs, uh, the wages are not going up, and yeah, it's, it's not it's not just rhetoric. I mean, uh, there is a lot of rhetoric, mm -hmm. uh, and, and and there are some very bad facts, yeah, and a misuse of facts. And we can play around with statistics, and people right. do that all the time. So one's got to be very careful sometimes. So you've got to really make do a lot of research to work out what is actually really true. And I think exactly. there, are, there are such things which are true and mm -hmm. some things which are untrue. And I think there are real facts and there's some things which are not facts. But the fact of the matter is that it's clear and, and, and you know, some very basic uh, work has been done by some very reputable economists both in Europe and Britain and in the United States mm -hmm. which does show that there is a clear downside mm -hmm. to free trade, globalization, and it's, it's, it's disrupted communities Mm -hmm. uh, it's, disrupt it's disrupted the social lives of many, many other people. Now, can you get those jobs back? As Trump mm -hmm. promises he will, that's a much bigger question. You can make all the promises in the world of bringing those jobs back to America. Whether or not it's ever going to be possible. Oh, whether it will be all jobs, maybe to a different format. Well, but it's not a skill set to that. Quite right, but it's a big transition. Yeah. You lose your job in the steel industry around the Great Lakes, and you know, how long is it going to take you to retrain if you're 45 years old? Yeah, you know the likelihood. If we're honestly, if we're honest about it, you're more likely to be flipping hamburgers mm -hmm. down, you know, down down at McDonald's or you know, stacking Walmart mm -hmm. rather than getting a, a, a good job as well. You can certainly get back into the labour market, but you're going to get back into the labour market right. without a full time union job, without all the add-ons, without the health mm -hmm. provisions, and you know, without the economic security. And I think that's and it is that level of economic insecurity. Yeah. and fear about about jobs and having jobs or bad jobs or lowering living my life is not as good as my parents life was I mean that's the, that's what's being said particularly in the United States mm -hmm. and that's where you get this big generational divide mm -hmm. between what you might call the baby boomers like myself who came in into the world in the 40s and 50s who've done quite well and the younger generation and others of course who you know kind of find life far more insecure mm -hmm. Well, that's a great point because the job team can even in rich countries can get affected by automation and artificial intelligence, machine intelligence. A lot of things are coming now. Sure. What you'll do, Professor Cox, we'll take a short break. We'll be back shortly. Okay, thanks very much. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. your company's marketing plan could it use a little help for most businesses the answer is yes tune in each week to marketing that won't break the bank host janet kunst and her guests will show you how and where to bring your marketing to the next level 
Each show will feature action strategies that you can implement right away and see results. We'll make this easy for you. Start by tuning in every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Welcome back to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. Today we are in discussion with Professor Cox on the rise of populism and the crisis of globalization, Brexit, Trump, and beyond. Professor Cox, just I had a thought, which I thought I'll ask you anyway. <laughs> Is populism, or in your view, populism a temporary phenomenon, like a flavor of mm. the day for politicians to win election, or they can carry it for long duration and really hurt globalization? First, I don't, I don't think it's temporary. I mean, uh-huh. this modern, the new populism, as, as, as it's now being called, that has, be, that has begun to emerge in Europe, and I think even in the United States, over the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, Ross Perot, after all, in the yes. 1992, he's a classic populist, and that was 1992. Yeah. Um, we, we saw the emergence of certain populists in, in Europe uh, uh, in the early 2000s. I think the real turning point here, really, we're going to say, what, you want a date for it. What's really given it the boost, I think, is the 2008 mm-hmm. crash. The crisis. Yeah, the crisis yeah. of 2008. That, that has exposed some of the underlying weaknesses and problems that were already there and made them worse mm-hmm. and added to the levels of economic insecurity in the United States and, and Europe. Mm-hmm. And even though the US has recovered quite well, nonetheless, it's not got back to where it was before. The European Union has certainly not got back to where it was before. And I do think there are long-term trends here, both economic and social, mm-hmm. uh, which are, it's going to make this a long-term phenomenon. And it, by the way, it's also a phenomenon not just on the, on the conservative right. Mm-hmm. There's also a left-wing version of populism. Mm-hmm. In the United States, you had Bernie Sanders, who yeah. did very well, who did very well in, really the, popular, yeah. in, the, in 2000, the 2016, and he spoke to younger people. Yeah. And he criticized the corporations, he criticized the establishment, he criticized Wall Street, he even attacked, I think, Mrs. Clinton for being, in a sense, in the pay of Goldman Sachs. He played the anti-establishment line very effectively. So you can have a left-wing, more progressive form mm-hmm. of populism. They may not be nationalist or xenophobic mm-hmm. or dis- disliking foreigners. So populism can have a progressive side. Mm-hmm. And in Europe, too, you know, Jeremy Corbyn in the United Kingdom, for instance, has just done very well in the UK election here. He did much better than anybody had anticipated, probably much better than he had anticipated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he, he took a populist line, mm-hmm. you know, for, for the many against the few. I mean, simple slogan, but it worked. And on, in continental Europe, you have a man called Mélenchon, who did very well in the first round of the presidentials in France. He got mm-hmm. just about 20% of the vote. Um, in France, in, in Italy, uh, you have the Five Star Movement. Mm. In uh, and, and in Spain, you have a, a political party called Podemos, which is which is a left wing party. So there's different varieties of populism, which suggests to me that this is a broader phenomenon. It's not just a conservative phenomenon, and we shouldn't always regard it as being just a right wing or chauvinistic phenomenon. Given that I think it has a much wider appeal. And the truth of the matter is, there are a lot of people out there, whether young people who are more 
internationalist and, and cosmopolitan, mm-hmm. or older people, if I can put it like that, who are more traditionalist, mm-hmm. um, who, who have some very, very grave doubts about the benefits of where the world economy has been moving. And I, th- I think this is what we see in populism. And unless there is a massive change in policy mm-hmm. from the top, uh, and, and from international economic institutions like the IMF, World Bank, and from major major states such as the United States and the European Union, as one of the big economic actors, in the, unless we see a major change of direction, it seems to me, which, and if these problems in the economy and society continue, I cannot but see populism continuing. Whether it will always win elections is another question, but it will define the debates in mm. countries, even if it doesn't always win the elections. Mm. Did you see, Professor Cox, the economic consequences of populism? Uh, well, I think there are economic consequences of populism. I think governments will be under more pressure to protect. Mm-hmm. They'll be under more pressure to keep industries at home. They'll be under more pressure to employ more of their own people mm-hmm. in, in, in industries. Mm-hmm. I mean, already in this country, Mrs. May, mm-hmm. who I would not regard as a populist in the authentic sense. I mean, mm-hmm. she's, sure, yeah. she's the daughter of a vicar. You know, she comes from a very respectable, middle, classically uh, middle-class background in, 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 rural, in rural England. Uh, uh, But even she has said, we have to make more jobs for British workers. Right. You know, if we're going to replace immigrants coming from the European Union or from, from say, from India, perhaps, we've got to kind of retrain our, quote-unquote, own uh, people. Uh, so it, it will have consequences. Whether this is economically feasible, you know, whether this, this runs against the logic of the world economy and against the logic of the market mm. remains to be seen. As Mrs. Thatcher once famously said, you can't buck the market. Right. And if you try and buck the market, and, and populism does buck the market, Uh-huh. You know, it's a reaction against the market, against the global market. It does try and buck the market by, by, this, by, by this new political uh, intervention. Whether it can actually stop the logic of the market working its way through, I'm not so sure. But nonetheless, in answer to your question, does it have political consequences? Absolutely no doubt about it. You know, Trump, you know, Trump was elected in the end. I mean, I know he didn't get more votes than Mrs. Clinton, but he still, he still won the presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, the Remain vote in the United Kingdom was still very high, 48% mm. of all voters in this country, but still 51% voted Brexit. So you can see that the political results are, are pretty clear in the UK and the USA. And what happened in Britain and the United States within the space of six months mm-hmm. has had a major impact On, on the rest of the world economy because Britain and the United States together have been the great drivers of globalization. That is true. In the 20th century. Yeah. So if these two countries alone begin to move back mm-hmm. from it with whatever, however it works its way out, that's bound to have a knock-on effect in the rest of the world. Right, right, right. Okay, uh, what we will do is Dr. Cox will take a short break here and we'll get back again. Thanks. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Tune in every week for the Ellis Martin Report. Our program will bring you the news and information that you need each week. We look at publicly traded small and mid-cap companies from a variety of sectors. We'll talk to key people in the industry to bring you the foreground and background of new and up-and-comers for potential investment. Please remember, invest only at your own risk. The Ellis Martin Report is meant for informational purposes only. Tune in every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. 
Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Welcome back. You are listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. In the earlier sections, Professor Cox provided us a wonderful overview of our subject of discussion today, the rise of populism in the crisis of globalization, Brexit, Trump, and beyond. We will now dive further into the topic and listen to an expert on what caused the Brexit and what are the possible lessons to be learned. We'll start this section with an introduction from Professor Cox in the session at LSE, uh, followed by the expert on the subject. Uh, well, firstly, uh, welcome. Uh, and for many of you, welcome back. Nice to see you. Um, you all look extraordinarily well. Some of you look too well, I think. Uh, have you been sitting on beaches? I've been asking people. I must say, <laughs> clearly we're working hard at our end. Uh, but as you can see, we're, we're collapsing onto the way. But anyway, it's great to have many of you back from um, from the past, uh, from our executive masters over many years. I think we're now in our fifth or sixth year, moving forward. And uh, so it's great, absolutely great. And thanks to all the organisers for this uh, event this morning. We've worked very hard to put this together. This is, I think, really our first alumni weekend. We've done it like this. And uh, so, so thanks to Adriana and Craig and, and, and others for all the work that they've done. Um, the topic, it's almost like you can't get away now from the rise of populism, the crisis of globalization, Brexit, Trump and beyond. And in fact, I won't be too autobiographical, but I give just one little thing. Last, uh, last week, I gave a talk in Dublin on the same. And next week, I'm giving the same talk in Belgrade. So clearly there's something around that people are interested in. Uh, and I, uh, I sent round a paper, which was part of the paper I gave in Dublin last week. And I, I might adapt for, uh, for Serbian reasons. I'll look through the paper to make sure there's nothing there which is inflammatory uh, or get me thrown in the Danube. Um, but anyway, clearly this is uh, one of the major policy problems and questions of the day. As I said in my paper, populism as an idea has been around a very long time for us. For those of us who go back long enough and who studied Russian history in the 19th century, which is what I did once upon a time, for those of us who knew Russian history in the 1870s and 60s, we all knew about the populists uh, who went to the people or tried to educate the people and even one of them assassinated a czar. Um, we knew about Amer American populism. This was a very big question that people tended to look at, even in the 1890s, a particular American variant. And then, of course, for those of you who studied Latin America, there was populism of a variety there, uh, particularly in Argentina, uh, particularly with Peron and Peronism. And I think what we're looking at now maybe is something a little bit different and a little bit more general, and something which is really about the West. Quite a lot of the populisms of the past were populisms of underdeveloped countries, less developed countries, the populism of the poor, the oppressed, the, the, those who lived in the third world, not entirely, but mainly. Um, and this is a very, very new phenomenon, as I, I, I try to explain in, in my particular paper. But anyway, that's not the point. You want to listen to me. We want to get on and listen to the speakers today. Actually, in terms of timing, this couldn't be better. Because as you know, uh, we recently had an election in this country, uh, only, what, 24, 48 hours ago. And as you know now, the Democratic Unionist Party of Northern Ireland now run Britain. <laughs> this, for somebody like myself who lived in Northern Ireland for 20 years, I do find this rather worrying, but we'll have to, to wait and see. And uh, the Scottish Tories have made an extraordinary revival. Everybody thought they were, they were dead, gone, and down under, and well and truly uh, de deceased, as they would say, like that parrot in that famous story. But they are not deceased. They've risen, they've risen again. 
So we are in a very, very new world, as we know, and it's great to have three speakers who can reflect on uh, Brexit, from Brexit to the elections, and now we should say after the elections. And of course, there's another populist who, who did quite well in the elections, who talked for the many and not for the few, and that was Mr. Corbyn, who was written off completely, I must say, I even wrote him off myself, could never win, he was the Michael Foote of the 21st century, Wonderful man may be, but couldn't get the votes out. And by God, he got the votes out, particularly young people. And this is a, I think we're actually seeing maybe what is a pretty radical reshaping of British politics, and it's going to carry on. So great to reflect on this this morning. Uh, I won't go into too much detail with everybody's uh, uh, bios. You've got them in your package. It's Dr. Uta Steiger, who will, be, who will be speaking on Brexit causes and lessons learned. I hope there are some lessons learned. Uh, not to hold referendum, I think, is the most obvious one, but there we go. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Jackson, Priest, colleague and friend here from the LSE, uh, Brexit nationalism and implications for the UK. And then top, Dr. Tim Oliver, who's actually known now as top Dr. Brexit, uh, Brexit and UK EU negotiations after the election. But I will call you Tim Oliver for the, for the, for the morning anyway, Tim. So what I suggest we do, we go straight to Uta, then straight on to Jennifer, then on to Tim. Now speak for about 10, 12 minutes each. And then we'll open it up for, for questions and answers. Once again, welcome, Uta, over to you. We'll now take a short break and uh, we'll resume in our next section uh, with comments from the expert on the subject, Brexit, what caused it and what lessons we can learn from it. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. unique and playful insider's take on the biggest stories in tech, media, and entertainment. Join Lori H. Schwartz, well-known technology catalyst, comedian, and geek girl, as she and leading experts in the media and content business dive into the biggest stories in technology trends, consumer behaviors, and its impact on Hollywood. If you're looking to respond to the tech-fueled changes in the marketplace, then tune in to the Tech Cat Show Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business and syndicated to Voice America Women's Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. We are on a very important subject today, the rise of populism and crisis of globalization. In this section, we will listen to an expert in discussion at LSE uh, highlighting uh, the causes of Brexit and the possible lessons to be learned from Brexit. I'm very pleased to be here today. 
Um, I've been told I should be talking about causes and lessons, and, and about 10 minutes are probably hardly enough to do that. So I'm just going to reflect on sort of three major areas that I think I was discussing, both when we think about what brought us to this point and uh, what we might take away from it. The starting point perhaps might be to say that the interesting question here is to what extent Brexit is understood as the cumulative outcome of a number of factors that are really particular to the UK, um, idiosyncratically British if you like, and to what extent it might be understood as the product of a broader, um, wider, more European or even more global um, development in politics uh, um, and elsewhere that we might factor in. That's just another way. Is it a perfect storm of contingent factors, or is it a deeper sort of structural issue that we need to look at? My answer that's typically academic, I suppose, well, it's a bit of both. Um, and um, I'm going to sort of not, go, not allocate those three items I want to mention in either category, but I think I'll become relatively clear what I mean. The first thing I want to look at is the tension between sovereignty, um, democracy, and global economic integration. Um, basically, I want to go back to um, a scholar from Harvard, Danny Roderick, who you may well know, who formulated this as the fundamental political trilemma of the world economy, namely the impossibility to simultaneously achieve democracy, national self-determination, and global economic integration. Um, let me just very briefly take you through these individual points. He says, A, counterintuitively perhaps today, markets require a wide range of legal, social and political institutions in order to embed um, the market nationally ensure that it remains socially um, sustainable. However, obviously all states are different, therefore institutions need to be different and um, respond to different preferences. Um, therefore, a world that is sufficiently responsive to uh, different democratic preferences will result in institutional divergence and diversity rather than a kind of harmonized overall global system. However, that obvious institutional diversity then inhibits the entire integration of global markets because it raises transaction costs. Therefore, a world that is sufficiently responsive to national democratic preferences will at the same time fall short of full globalization. That was his main point. So if we had those three elements, democracy, national self-determination, and economic globalization, or hyper-globalization, as you call it in your paper mm. as well, um, you only can choose two of each, never the three at a time. Um, in that case, most people would say regard national autarky as a non-starter in today's world. But unregulated free global markets are equally seen as likely to be inefficient, unjust, and prone to failures. For many, therefore, particularly sort of in the late 90s, early 2000s, probably the obvious answer would be to go for um, global um, or at least supranational democratic structures, the EU as a possible example of it. Um, one of the problems of the Brexit vote, I would say, is that um, that solution in itself had um, very much uh, lost credibility. Um, additionally, though, for the elite voters, the referendum seemed to promise that most elusive of things, the possibility to regain national autarky while deepening democracy and deepening globalization. That, I think, is the referendum's true version of have your cake and eat it. <laughs> um, but if, if we frame the vote that way, I think we can also have a possibly slightly more nuanced idea of why it appeals to such a wide range of voters. Um, both those that we now call the left behind, the just about managing of globalization, and those who favor untrammeled, unfettered global markets you know, global Britain free um, free uh, trade um, further than rather than sort of um, go, going uh, going back into uh, sort of the protectionist measure. Therefore, I think it's not a question that Brexit divided the country, but it revealed existing um, and very deep-seated divisions. Um, it's an inequality and also a social polarization. The founding reasons of which we are we can discuss, which has also been sort of stratified by very strong regional differences. So that is one 
one thing to be probably um, put out there as a cause and a lesson at the same time. But I think, and as somebody who's, who's at least partly taught in the history of European integration, I think history and the particularity of a country also plays a significant role. After all those factors that I've just outlined, they do remain the same in other European countries and have not led to the same outcome. I mean, we had those jittery moments looking at Le Pen uh, at Wilders um, uh, and uh, even the Austrian presidential elections, but it's not come to the point um, that it has come in this country. One argument for that is that the UK has had a very particular, pragmatic, strategic, and if you say want to say transactional approach to integration. One, therefore, that is um, mainly looking at national interests rather than at Europe's fundamental values, which continental European countries, for various reasons, probably respond differently to. The concept of shared sovereignty was always shared, uh, you know, viewed with suspicion. That, I mean, that has tradition, obviously. I don't need to take you back to the 19th century's splendid isolationist um, discourses. Churchill himself, often Britain's big Europeanist, you know, put it out there. Britain is with Europe, it isn't of it. We're friends and allies, we're not um, seeing ourselves as part of the integration. Um, the UK chose not to join the original um, six in the 1950s. Instead, it preferred to commit to a multilateral free trade system and to its Atlantic uh, relations, which it prioritised with relations over Western Europe. Its change of heart in the 1960s was likely more driven by its interest to avoid um, the economic decline and not because of any sudden conversion to the political cause of European integration. Um, that again sets it quite apart from the founding members and most of the, the, the ensuing members of the, of the community. Um, and even after it, it, um, it joined <coughs> in 1973, after two unsuccessful attempts, um, which I think loomed large in the British psyche at the time, the UK made a rather awkward partner. I mean, the, one of the first things it did was renegotiate its membership straight afterwards and hold a referendum, just that it went the other way. Um, so Britain sought and received special treatment ever since, um, be it in rebates, be it in picking and choosing of particular um, new policy areas being introduced or being fit in the form of opt-outs. And I think Theresa May's experience as a Home Secretary, that's a, a side point, um, in which she could um, leave a whole area of policy and then opt back in is something that very much shapes her understanding of European integration to better work. Um, so British public never really warmed to the idea of European integration and the UK's participation in it. Um, and the levels of support um, have fluctuated widely, not, not only, um, say, sorry, also, I think, uh, supported by a rather rapidly Eurosceptic effect. Maybe the last point I want to make, um, if I still have the time, yeah, sure. is, um, is that just a few kind of reflections on our political system. We have a majoritarian system, a first-past-the-vote voting system, which manufactures parliamentary majorities, as we have just witnessed, or, uh, without requiring a popular majority. Um, it's a small advantage in voters that then triggers a larger majority of seats. And that, I think, has several implications. Um, on the one hand, in a system with large and usually stable majorities, it is party internal dissent that matters greatly. It is therefore that that effectively made David Cameron call that vote originally. It was a clever idea, so he thought, of keeping his backbenchers at bay while crossing fingers for a hung parliament, and that would not force him to carry it through. But it has also other effects. The um, electoral system, as we know, systematically disadvantages smaller parties. So you could vote for UKIP to your heart's content, but it would always be unlikely to make any impact whatsoever, either in Parliament or in government policy. <laughs> Add to this the ever-looser links between interests and the organisations that traditionally represented them, such as trade unions or political parties, um, and politics was, I suppose, bound to become increasingly volatile. Um, in a referendum in which every vote counted equally, 
there was a real incentive and probably also then a palpable sense of glee of sticking to the establishment. Um, I mean, referenda are really blunt, they're conflict-maximizing instruments, as Sri Lanka put it once. Um, mm. And instruction from the people uh, to the government appears at first sight to be the embodiment of a democratic mandate um, and a principle. But it's always an incomplete basis for public policy, and that's, I suppose, at the heart of what we see right now. A referendum can at best be a decision of principles. It can't really guide you as where to go. So in, as we know in this case, um, the, the um, outcome of the referendum needed to be interpreted. We wanted to leave, yes, but how? And that precisely is what's been left open. And if anything, um, while the polls have really shown very little bias remorse about uh, leaving the EU per se, the question of what the people want exactly, and you know that's what the election shows, has really delivered a rather open verdict. We don't quite know. So perhaps taking away from it, um, summing up that we do need to look at the bigger questions um, that Professor Cox also raised in his um, paper about the relationship between uh, national control and um, international markets. We need to think very carefully about just the way that people do understand themselves as a political community. And um, we may need to have a better look at the way we run our political systems. Mm -hmm. We will now close our show uh, at this stage and we will continue our discussions in the next program. Uh, we will have discussions on Brexit, nationalism and its implications for the UK, followed by uh, the discussion on United States, the impact coming from US, Trump, the US and the future of international liberal order. Thank you for listening in today. And please do tune in next week to listen to the second part of this important subject, the rise of populism and the crisis of globalization, Brexit, Trump and beyond.